Another exciting episode of FW Presents, the always incredible anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and my guest this time is the faithful friend of the network and our larger podcasting community who has finally started making guest appearances so that he's no longer just that guy on Twitter and the comments section. You may have heard him on recent episodes of the Longbox Crusade and Secret Wars and Beyond. And he also lent his devilish voice to last year's Mephisto vs. the Podcasters crossover event. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tim, the ultimate price. Hey, thank you, Ryan. That, that's way too good of an intro for me. I don't, I don't think I quite measure up to that introduction, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Thank you. <laughs> That'll be for the listeners to determine after this episode. So. Oh, well, then I'm, I'm sunk. Never mind. <laughs> no, but it is, it's great to finally have you. Uh, and I am excited because we are talking about a character that we both love. But even though we are covering a Spider-Man comic, it is not the friendly neighborhood wall crawler that is the subject of this discussion. He's not? I really thought that's what we were doing. It's like you said Spider-Man, and that's what I got. So I'm okay. Obviously, I'll have to go. I'll have to do some speed reading. You go ahead. I'll do some speed <laughs> reading. I'm on top of it. No, no, I'm putting you on the spot. Who could we be talking about? Who made her dramatic debut in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 16? Oh well, in that case, it's the one and only Monica Rambeau, otherwise known as Captain Marvel. And that's a very timely person to be talking about today. I don't have you ever heard about Captain Marvel recently? There's been some news. Yeah, that, that name seems to be somewhere in the popular culture in the in the zeitgeist right now. <laughs> may or may not have informed our decision to do this podcast now. Yeah, we are talking about the second character in the Marvel universe to go by the name Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau of the New Orleans Harbor Patrol. And Tim, am I right that Monica is your favorite Avenger? That is very true. She, uh, I have loved her for a long time, ever since she was introduced. So, yeah, she's been you know one of the great loves of when I was discovering comics and really getting into collecting. Uh, she was one of the Avengers that came along shortly after that began. So, uh, she's just been very near and dear to my heart. How about you? I I have liked her. I mean, and I, I mean, I'm gonna. I'll show my ignorance a little bit because I didn't know who the character was for a long time. Because mm-hmm. again, when I started reading comics, first of all, when I started reading comics, I was a huge X-Men fan, and for the first part of the early '90s, when I was collecting, I was firmly in the mutant camp, and uh, I wasn't really into the Avengers. But it doesn't really matter because even by then, when I was really into it, Monica had kind of gone away. So what I knew of her was I had always seen the cover to Secret Wars. Oh, like I, yeah, I just, like yeah. that cover, which is amazing. That first co- cover was sort of imprinted on my brain, mm-hmm. and I just knew her as the other black girl who's not Storm. <laughs> like that was just <laughs> how I knew who the character was. For for a while, even I didn't even know her name. I knew nothing about her more than that. But then, like at some point, it was like, well, she must be important. I mean, she's on the cover of Secret Wars <laughs> alongside Spider-Man, Wolverine, the Hulk, Captain America, like the biggest heroes at Marvel are there. And so is this woman who I don't know who she is and I can't find her on any book on the shelves right now, but like, she must have been important. Mm-hmm. So that was a question that was always in the back of my mind is who is she? She wasn't in any of the comics that I was going at, at some point I figured out she was Captain Marvel, but then that name was reappropriated by other characters and she was going right, by right. different names, whether it was Photon or Spectrum or, or just Monica. Mm-hmm. And I guess, uh, well, it probably would have been very, very soon after I got the Marvel Unlimited app a couple of years ago. This issue was one of the first ones I read. Oh, nice! And I think it was just because I had like a you know a bug in my ear. I was like, "Who is that woman?" Let's finally figure out. So I, I searched who is like where where did she debut? She debuted in the Spider-Man story. So I read this one um, mm-hmm. that, that we're going to talk about. So yeah, I, I've. Just because I didn't see her for so long, I didn't know like what her mm-hmm. iconic status was. But like mm-hmm. now, right. having read that the Stern Avengers run that came after that, like I, I really I, I like this character. She's my favorite Captain Marvel. Excellent. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, yeah, I mean we're we're sort of bearing the lead, so we're gonna take a quick podcast promo break right now, and then we will be back to talk about Amazing Spider-Man Annual 16. 
For years, the Fire and Water Podcast Network has found its joy talking about comics. From Aquaman and Firestorm to Batman and Plastic Man. From giant treasuries to pocket-sized digests. From massive miniseries events to singular one-shot adventures. From romance to horror to whatever the hell Ohatmu or not is. In the last year, they've begun to carve a path through their favorite television shows, such as MASH, Cheers, and Justice League Unlimited, and there's no sign of them stopping. What medium will fire and water conquer next? Fire and Water Records, the music anthology podcast from the Fire and Water Network. Find your joy in all new ways as members of the Fire and Water Network and their friends discuss favorite songs, albums, concerts, and artists. Hang on, I've been doing a music show for two years. Featuring Record Revolution. Join the Brothers Daily as we catalog the essential years that shaped popular music and our own lives. A very daily Christmas. An annual celebration of our favorite holiday tracks. Plus, all new episodes of Zoom for Sam. The show in which I share my joy of Samantha Fox by spotlighting a single single every single episode. And Pod Dylan. No, not Pod Dylan. We discussed this. That's staying on its own feed. Not Pod Dylan, but everything else I said. Plus, so much more. There's even a chance David Ace Gutierrez will show up. Which brings us back to Fastball, which is really one of the most interesting American bands in the world today. When you think about the number of side projects and solo projects associated with the band, it actually almost out. Fire and Water Records, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Amazing Spider-Man Annual 16 was released on August 31st, 1982 for the ridiculous sum of $1. The story, titled Who's That Lady, is written by Roger Stern and edited by Tom DeFalco, with pencil art by John Romita Jr., inks by John Romita Sr., letters by Jim Novak, and colors by Stan Goldberg. Mr. Price, would you mind taking over the synopsis? Who's that lady? So our synopsis begins in New York. Peter Parker is at the Port Authority bus terminal to pick up Harry and Liz Osborne. A beautiful woman passes him by and sets off his spider sense. Since he has 15 minutes to spare, Peter follows her into a shady neighborhood and changes to Spider-Man to protect her. But she dispatches two muggers handily with some judo. As Spidey approaches her from behind, powerful blasts from her hands throw him down the alley and he loses consciousness. She realizes her mistake, checks to see if he's okay, then zaps her ruined street clothes, revealing a silver and black costume. In a flash of lightning, she transports to the top of the Empire State Building, and we see the new Captain Marvel. Looking over the city, our heroine's memories flash back to the events which led her here. Monica Rambeau of the New Orleans Harbor Patrol confronts the Harbor Master on being passed over for captaincy in favor of four male candidates, which he does not appreciate, and dismisses Monica. She storms back to her office and is surprised by an old family friend, Professor Andre Leclerc. He's come to Monica for help. Professor Leclerc's process of drawing energy from other dimensions received funding from a South American dictator who hoped to use the theory for a weapon, and Leclerc's former assistant, Felipe Picaro, was working for the weapon on an old Roxxon oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. Leclerc needs Monica's help to stop Picaro. Monica devises an unorthodox plan, bluff her way onto the oil rig, look for anything suspicious, and take what she finds to the Coast Guard. She and Leclerc borrow a boat and head to the oil rig, where Monica charms the security guards and Picaro himself into letting her aboard for a picnic. But before she can investigate, alarms go off, because Leclerc snuck aboard on his own and got caught. Picaro can't help but monologue that his energy disruptor can obliterate any city within 2,000 miles, and Monica has heard enough. She decks Picaro and smashes the control grid with bare fists, causing an explosion of energy. 
Instantly, a flash of light strikes a dock back in New Orleans and congeals into Monica herself. Confused and not knowing what has happened, she radios the Coast Guard for help, supercharging the transmitter and almost frying the receiving radio operator. Then, needing new clothes, she pieces together an outfit from old Mardi Gras costumes. Suddenly, Monica sees in the distance a lightning bolt strike up to the sky from the oil rig. Fearing for Leclerc's safety, Monica transforms back into light and flies to the rig, but not in time to stop Picaro from shooting Leclerc. Monica decks him again, but Leclerc says the real danger is the glowing interdimensional portal that, if not stopped, will destroy our world. Unsure how to stop it, Monica is sucked into the portal, and her new powers act as a plug as well as draining the energy out of the portal. Picaro tries again to murder Leclerc, but Monica stops him in a flash of lightning and zaps Picaro for being a loser. As Monica helps Leclerc to his feet, a security guard is heard saying, Capitan est Marvilla. Two days later, Leclerc is recovered and reveals how Monica's powers work, letting her change her body into any wavelength on the electromagnetic spectrum to travel at the speed of light, possess the properties of the form chosen, and even force blasts when in human form. To thank her, Leclerc shows his science cred by getting an unstable molecule version of her costume, and sharing a newspaper headline asking, Who is Captain Marvel? is enough for Monica to quit the Harbor Patrol, ready to take on the world as Captain Marvel. Back to the present, the question is, why is Monica in New York? Because her powers are building out of control, and Leclerc sent her to get super scientific help. Spider-Man, wanting answers about this mystery woman, follows her, but just misses her when she flashes to the Baxter building. Captain Marvel is looking for Reed Richards, but only finds the thing. He suggests calling the Avengers, but after the call connects, CM rashly transforms into electricity and rides the call to Avengers Mansion, and Spider-Man is again one step behind, but alarmed to hear CM might explode and swings to the mansion to help. At the mansion, Iron Man, chilling at the monitor duty, is overloaded by the arriving Captain Marvel, who also fries this mansion's security systems. CM apologizes to an immobilized Iron Man, who asks her to lock herself in their adamantium containment chamber for safety. Meanwhile, Spider-Man arrives on the scene and confronts CM. They scuffle until he knocks her out, just as Iron Man and the Wasp round the corner. Finally, Spider-Man learns that CM needs their help fast, as her body starts to glow and could explode any second. Iron Man improvises a way to draw the excess energy from CM, and Spidey and the Wasp duck under a web shield as the incredible power is unleashed through Iron Man's repulsor ray gauntlet straight up into the sky. Shortly afterwards, we see the Thing has arrived to find the Avengers, CM, and Spider-Man talking and enjoying some refreshments, because Jarvis is the best. CM is good as new, and her powers are safely under control to everyone's relief. Until Spidey checks the time, he forgot all about Liz and Harry's bus. Finally making it to the terminal, a chagrined Peter is too late. Except Harry and Liz had been delayed and had to take a later bus anyway. Good thing Peter found something to keep him busy. The final caption on the last page states, Watch for the next appearance of the exciting new Captain Marvel in Avengers number 227 on sale in October. Awesome. Thank you very much for that recap. That was not so much as a recap. That was a, it says on the cover, you know, king size annual. So that was a king size synopsis, if ever there was one. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Big picture thoughts. What did you think of the story itself? Oh, this story is just pure comics. It is just such a joy. We have the great two sequences happening here. We have the New York in the present, and we have New Orleans in the past. And the two stories are—it just flows right into one. It doesn't—it just is nice, solid story in each part. They almost could have done it as chapters. It felt kind of like chapters, but it worked really well. And I also kind of wondered when I read it on this reread if Roger Stern even had this as like a pitch for a Captain Marvel solo title. And this might have been the first issue of a solo title. Mm -hmm. But the way that Captain Marvel kind of worked in the Avengers, I don't really think so. But it reads – it still reads that way. So it works really well. Yeah, I actually – I was thinking about that. It's almost like – two and a half stories mm -hmm. it's like there's like the middle chapter in new orleans is like a captain marvel origin story and that could have been published as a one shot completely self-contained mm -hmm. and then the second half is 
Captain Marvel's first time meeting the Avengers, which almost like could have been an issue of the Avengers or something else, mm-hmm. like a second part, because it's like we're in a different location, we've got a different cast, it's all sort of different, and it's just sort of bookend by Spider-Man, who's nominally in the story, but it's not really a Spider-Man story at all. Like I think you could have taken Peter Parker out of the story completely. So I do kind of think that maybe Stern was writing, he he wrote this Captain Marvel one-off, and then he maybe wrote, like, this was, because this was right when he took over writing the book, The Avengers, too. So I wonder if, like, he had this, like, idea as, like, an Avengers story, and then they gave him the Spidey annual, and it was just decided, like, they couldn't do a one-shot with their, the brand new character. It would be easier to introduce her in a book that they knew would sell, like a Spider-Man annual. And maybe that's how this whole thing came together. That would be my best guess. Yeah, that could be. And when I looked it up, he had been writing Amazing Spider-Man for almost a year by the time this annual came out. So he'd been solidly the writer for Spider-Man there. So it kind of fit that he would be doing the annual. But then he got the Avengers gig, as you said, at the same time. So this works really well. And it's also kind of fun to me when you were talking about the Secret Wars cover, because you look at the cover of this annual, and every character on that cover is also on the Secret Wars cover. So that's pretty fun. (laughs) Um, Nice. I didn't notice that. Yeah, another thing that's kind of a feel for the whole origin or first issue part of the New Orleans chapter is that we're introduced to, like, a science-y supporting cast member. Like, he almost could have been a Professor Stein sort or a a Q sort, you know, just a a character to help out Monica figure out her powers, how to do things day to day. And, you know, how easy is it to get unstable molecules in the Marvel Universe? I've seen things where it's really hard, (laughs) but this, this scientist that is not that well known, and Monica only helps him because he's a family friend. So it's not like he's a famous scientist, and he got a hold of unstable molecules. I, what is, I, that? That was that. I I like it. I like it. I not. I don't really question it. It's just funny to me. <laughs> I think. I mean, Hank Pym and Reed Richards both independently created unstable molecules, I think. And, you know, even on the Marvel sliding timeline, that was probably at least five years ago now, maybe more so. Let's just right, say, like, right. it's been filtered through the ranks of, like, scientists. Like, the, her, her version might be, like, a crappy knockoff. Oh, like, yeah, sure, sure. Like, third-generation unstable molecules. Yeah, Walmart unstable molecules. Yes. Got it. That, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> um, focusing on the origin part of hers, and you're right, like, we do, like, we get her whole life. She's uh, mm-hmm. a lieutenant in the New York Harbor Patrol she's got her scientist you know sidekick and everything like that she's got a boss who doesn't really like her doesn't think highly of her i like that the sexism angle is played up Mm -hmm. you know i I like taking us out of new york for once putting us in new orleans is a nice it's a nice little location it's again it gives us a a new sense of place a new sense of color Mm -hmm. and i I know it was was just like a really nice thing i thought this was a very very well-told origin story that shows that even before she gets the superpowers, mm-hmm. like, they, like what do you want from a superhero before they get the power set? You want to know that they're a good person. Well, she she's devoted herself to a sense of service. She's not quite like military, but she's in the mm-hmm. Harbor Patrol. So she is a person of a uniform who has these values, who believes in justice and protecting the innocent. Like, short, mm-hmm. shortcut, really quick. We get it. Okay, she's she's a good person. She still has these clashes with authority, though. She thinks that she's not getting past it. So, okay, she's a little bit of a rebel. A rebel. Mm-hmm. You know, she'll brush up against authority. She she has the way that she wants to do things, and she feels like she's being restrained. And she's also, like, smart and clever. Once, you know, once this guy comes to her, she finds a way of getting them onto the oil rig. And she's hot. She's good looking. She she like takes off her like robe to like show off right. her body in order to you know the guards. These armed guards are like, yeah, get lost, lady. You can't come aboard our oil rig. And she's like, oh, the old owners used to let me have a picnic up here and sunbathe on the helipad. And she kind of shows them their skin. They're hey, maybe we can make an exception. She uses her body. She uses her sexuality to her advantage. Oh but, yes. But it's still she's the one in control. You know, it's not objectifying mm-hmm. her. She's doing it to get one over on them. Right. So, and she's also just, she's a woman of action. When it looks like he's got this weapon that's going to destroy cities, she just, Captain Kirk style, punches the thing until it stops working. Yes. <laughs> and kind of gets these powers accidentally, so. Oh, yes. Yeah, if, if you want to make me like this character, Roger Stern does a really good job of doing it in a really short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then my last thing about her is, I just, I love the fact that her costume is cobbled together out of Mardi Gras clothes. That's just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I, I will have to... 
I think we've a lot of people on the network and a lot of podcasters I've listened to all sing the praises of Roger Stern, and I. I can't do that strongly enough. I'm getting, getting a little bit back to the history of getting this book and this character. It's like I had been getting my subscription to Avengers and Spider-Man for a year, and I think my Spider-Man subscription had lapsed a little bit before this annual came out. But I wouldn't have gotten the annual anyway that way. So I was getting these books off the racks, especially this annual. And I got it right as soon as I could. But I think I read the Avengers story first before I got this one. But it didn't – that was fine. I was glad to get it. So Roger Stern being the writer of both of those books when my comic book collecting was really kicking into gear has made an impression my whole life ever since then because he is just a wonderful storyteller, a master craftsman is what I would call him in his storytelling style. So that works so well for here. And it's like here we get – like you said about how we establish who Monica is. The first thing we get is Peter's sort of surface impression that she's a beautiful woman. But the second thing we see is her fight. She takes out two muggers. That's the second thing we see her do. And then the third thing we see is her powers. Even there, you see that progression of, you know, immediate impression to, oh, no, there's much more to this woman than we know. And everything you said about how they establish her character in New Orleans and everything, it's like, yeah, that's right on the money. And, oh, my gosh, it's like in the synopsis, we called it her charming her way onto the tanker. (laughs) And, no, it's like she's in a full-blown bikini and just unrobes to show off herself to the guards to get herself on the ship. And, you know. I was a sophomore in high school when this book came out, and I'll say that also made a lasting impression nonetheless, shall we say. Uh, (laughs) As one of the security people said, Karazma! Favorite Avenger. Favorite Avenger right there, my favorite (laughs) Avenger. And, and but I, but I'll, I will you know no fishnets. There's no fishnets here. I don't. Ah, but you know, with her costume though, is this? I don't know. Are we dazzled by dan skin? Is that what it is? It's, <laughs> it's somewhere there. Um, and it was. It is just like so ridiculous that she ends up in a warehouse that has Mardi Gras costumes. I mean, it makes it makes no sense. You know, it's the it's the kind of coincidence that you expect from your superhero origin. Right. And she's able to put together a really good looking costume from those things. It's like, yeah, it, you just go with it. It's like it just works great. And can we talk about her costume some? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Because I love the color scheme of the silver and black. I'm, has a huge contrast to it, but makes it beautiful. And it has has the swooping wings with it. And I know some people how some people feel about the bucket boots, but those just work with this outfit. They've done other versions of her without the bucket boots, and sorry, it just doesn't look right. It just doesn't look right. It, she needs the drama of those things. But I was also thinking about her costume, which is really crazy. It's like this – I did not think about this until this reread. So it's like the difference between my initial impression versus reading it now is how much of her costume I can see influences from Marvel with like the mask and the way that that works on her face. And of course the chest emblem, those very much kind of evoke the Marvel version of Captain Marvel. But then you think about it and you go – you see some Shazam Captain Marvel influences here too with the fact that she's got the half cape. It's a short cape. It's not a long one, but it still is right there. It's, a, it's, not, it's a just to the waist level cape. And the bucket boots, you've got those. And then you look at her powers and the first thing she does is turns into a lightning bolt. The first thing, that's a pretty blatant almost uh, homage to Shazam right there. And I wonder if they did – I have to think that with Stern, he did it on purpose. I can't imagine any other writer. I would might question it, but not Stern. He did that on purpose. And then she has like an old, the old mentor, the scientist, right there. Mm-hmm. So this, it's just not, it's not a huge thing, but there's some fun little nods along the way that just bring it, bring it, make it even more reinforce that this is Captain Marvel now. So that's just, I just, I just thought those were fun. How about what did you think? What, what were your thoughts about her costume? I've always liked it, and again, I think maybe it is the the fact that it's the stark silver and black, and I mean, on the you know the color page of the of the comic, it just comes off as white. But I like like the stark sort of you know black and white nature of it, and how how stark that is. I mean, when you put her in a lineup with other heroes, it does set her apart. You know, I mean, it mm-hmm. get like you know Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, and like some of the other Avengers together. It's it's easy to just see like a wash of colors and everything, but the fact that it's just black and white kind of like makes her her stand mm-hmm. out. Um, and in this comic in particular, 
I mean, I think that really accents the few notes of color on her, which are the brown of her face, but also the red of her lips. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that really stands out in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I never I never actually thought about how the way her costume, other than the, the symbol, sort of the logo, the Starburst type of thing, emblem, I never really thought about how her costume seems to sort of be a... Uh, a combination, like an homage, at least to some of these previous Captain's Marvel. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's pretty amazing. And and the decision to make her an African American woman, I think, was also kind of bold. I mean, yes, we've had Storm and Misty Knight, both of whom I was familiar with by now, but not not overly familiar with. But I think that was a really a bold choice. Um, it worked really well with fitting it into her origin story. And I think it was a great thing to great thing to have done really ahead of its time. I mean, this is it's not like this was the sixties or something, obviously. I mean, this is still the eighties. But it was still a big deal. Um, and to make her so to make her a powerful presence and a strong will presence. And you very much can see them taking taking right. some cues from Storm and Misty Knight, but making her her own person. She's definitely not a, just a cookie cutter of either of those two in this book. Actually, I I really like in the beginning of her flashback, I like the scene with her and her boss when they're talking about her getting passed over for the captaincy because her boss is a black man. Mm-hmm. And it's like, God, like, it, it, like in terms of like comics of this time, like other than like uh, you know a Luke Cage story or a Black Panther story, but like in a in a mainstream superhero comic where it's a, it's a Spider Man, how often do you have scenes with just two people of color talking about something? Yeah. where race isn't the, really the central issue of it. I mean, the, that's oh, the thing. Exactly. Like, I mean, yeah. if he was a white man, her argument could have been, "You passed me over because I'm black," but no, that has nothing to do with it. Her argument is, "You're passing me over because I'm a woman," and that's sexist. So there's a different thing, but just the fact that you've got a black man and a black woman arguing like this i just i like that scene because we don't see a lot of scenes like that in in these comics of this era that's very true and that's also one of the hallmarks of carol danvers character from the beginning was to make her a feminist they made a big deal about doing that there you know Mm -hmm. ask me about my feminist agenda no that's different that's a different character um (laughs) but that's a very reasonable you know extension to an and this may almost sounds almost more like that I was thinking that I'm saying that they're cherry picking the ideas from all these other characters who had Marvel in their name to make her make this character. No, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, uh, but I do see some influences that might be tributes to those characters or, you know, and, and or just the fact that, you know, to be the kind of character that she was going to turn out to be, this is where she needed to start. And it also is kind of interesting in that we have this introduction here of a very strong person but then she finds herself thrust into the avengers and very reasonably turns into the newbie the novice the one who's like unsure of herself because and knowing that she's got a lot to learn because she's around all these experienced heroes so i like that it's a very natural thing to me you know you would see that in the real in the real world you might in your fiction you might go like oh that's a change in her character it's like no that's a very natural thing to have progress so so many so many good things to see with how stern handles her you know what i just thought of and it's something that you kind of mentioned beforehand when you you mentioned that her mentor professor leclerc is kind of martin stein-ish in his role mm-hmm. With her joining the Avengers as basically being first time introduced like this, like a brand new character introduced and immediately joining the team, mm-hmm. it does remind me of Firestorm with how quickly he was created and then how quickly he joined the Justice League of America and how Con- Jerry Conway set that up. Oh, yeah. It does kind of feel like she is in that that rookie kind of position of a, a you know, Sort of like the like the superhero intern learning from the big guns because this is a time period I was actually going to come back to this. Like I love the Avengers lineup of this era as soon as she joins up. Like oh. I don't oh, know yes. if I'll ever find the perfect Avengers lineup mm-hmm. um, because that I mean it's so subjective and it changes. Like sometimes I think the perfect Avengers lineup has to have Vision and Scarlet Witch, and sometimes I'm like, no, nah, mm. it doesn't need them. But I think of like <laughs> all of the Avengers lineups they've had, like when. When I think of the Avengers, the first five characters I think of are Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Hawkeye, and the Wasp. Those are just like the first five that I think of. And those were five of the six 
when, like, towards the end of Jim Shooter's run and once Roger Stern took over. And then you add in the sixth one was She-Hulk, oh, who yes. I love. She's one of my favorite characters. And I've always wished that she would have had a bigger, mm-hmm. stronger presence in the Avengers. Unfortunately, I don't think she ever really got a, her foothold in there. I think she was more of a... Uh, she has more of a claim to Fantastic Four than the Avengers. But those six characters, like, for that very short period of time, I love that lineup. And then when you add Captain Marvel to the mix in this run, this Monica influence, like, that, those seven could very well be, like, my my favorite Avengers lineup, really. It's, it's really close. So that, like, on, on the uh, second-to-last page, when the thing is, like, walking through the mansion, he turns it around, and he sees, and just them all standing together. This is a great Avengers team shot and everything, so... I love this group. I love this pairing. So she she came to the team right at the right time. I, I completely feel free right there because this is definitely one of the great lineups. And they've come back in, to this one or things similar to it more than once. I will say, though, I have, I'm perhaps a little bit more attached to She-Hulk as an Avenger um, since I saw her first introduction to it from day one. So And then her moving to the Fantastic Four was a huge shock, which I loved. But it was a huge shock. So I have I that's my own personal affinity. But like yes, you have the those those five classic members plus She Hulk. I mean, and the lineup just before this, you know, had Tigra in there some and Yellow Jacket and things that happened with Yellow Jacket, which we won't talk about right here. Um, and then the lineup right before that. I do that, love his fall from grace. <laughs> it, it's it's a it's special. I'm I'm mixed on it. I I I used to I used to have more positive feelings for it outright. Now I'm more mixed on it. But that that just that's changing with times. The times change, and that's how it goes. And the lineup before this kind of prominently featured like Wonder Man and the Beast, Scarlet Witch and Vision. So kind of seeing them go on was really a bit of a shock as well. But seeing the t- team evolve to this point was just wonderful. And even though we're not going to have Hawkeye around much longer, he's still a presence. And we see the team continue to kind of evolve and this being most of the core members that we get going forward. Uh, so yeah, this is to me one of the great all-time lineups. Before we move on from this issue, I did want to talk about the art because we have John Romita Jr. doing the pencils and John Romita Sr. inking over him. And I gotta say, I don't recognize John Romita Jr. in this art. (laughs) He has such a a defining, like, uh, such an, Mm -hmm. usually such a distinctive and recognizable style, John Romita Jr. But I think probably Bob Layton, who inked him on Iron Man, and now his father, who inks him on this, really, really soften his work and, and and shape it so that it looks a little bit more kind of classical house-style Marvel. Um, it looks good. It looks great. I, I, I love the art in this. But yeah, when I mm-hmm. look at the credits, I'm like, this doesn't look like John Romita Jr. at all. <laughs> I can see what you're saying. I, though one thing is that I would that we definitely see is that this is Romita Jr. in the very beginning of his work. True. So he's still perfecting his own style. At this point, I think he's sticking very much more house style um, in terms of his character and how his characters look in terms of his acting ability with his characters and the way he stages things and and draws things on the page. I see there's there's some hints of the Romita Jr. that we're going to see in the future. And I see some things that definitely do not look like the way that Romita Sr. would stage them. I get more from Romita Sr., and I might get some hate comments from this. I apologize. He's always got more of a style that makes me think of romance, comic sort of staging and character interaction, if that kind of gets across what I'm thinking. It's like it, that's just the sort of thing that we kind of see. But you can tell Romita Jr.'s influence here with some of the more fluid motions, how Iron Man sort of is sagging after he zaps the excess energy into the – into the heavens. Um, Spider-Man kind of playfully putting his fingers on his chin. And even like the half wink that Monica gives when she says, oh, you want an unconventional approach, eh? I might have some ideas. It's like that That just is, that screams out Ramita Jr. being more in there. But boy, their pairing is in this issue is phenomenal. It's just wonderful. I even went. I even had to go and look it up a little bit. I I, I apologize if research is not supposed to be done for this podcast, but I did some research anyway. Because um, I was curious. I am if, not research averse. No. <laughs> that's, that's fine. I was wondering if they'd done anything else together. Um, 
my amazing world of comics helped me out quite a bit. Awesome site. No surprise that. Um, I found three issues that looked like that was that I think were both of them. One was a Spider-Man 238. And if that number rings a bell, that's the introduction of the Hobgoblin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> a second one is another amazing Spider-Man number 247 which is Spider-Man on the hunt for the Hobgoblin, but instead he runs into Thunderball. And the issue after this one is the kid who collects Spider-Man. So issue 247 itself was, you know, a good solid issue, but not necessarily as noteworthy. But oh my gosh, the issue that follows after it is one of my favorite, most heartbreaking issues I've ever read. And it still makes me cry. I'll, I'll say it right now. It still makes me cry. Damn it. <laughs> uh, the third issue is Uncanny X-Men 177, which um, gets the X-Men versus the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And it's got that one cover of Wolverine standing over a bleeding Kitty Pride. It's a very iconic cover, although the issue itself, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if it necessarily stands out that much on its own. But it's a, just an interesting sort of things to have some pairing on. So for you know a father and son pair, it's like maybe they don't work that well together. I don't know. Maybe they don't get along that well. <laughs> Although it was funny to get a credit for their for the proud wife and mom in the book itself, Virginia Romita being crowded credited in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number Sixteen. That, that was a that was a fun little tidbit. What would you What did you think about? Um, again, I, I sort of said it that like, yeah, I just, I can kind of, I, I definitely see where, what you were saying in terms of a lot of the staging and sort of just character blocking feels a lot more dynamic, feels more junior-ish than I can see it. So I, I definitely, it definitely, I, I, I don't get the sense that this was like, this was John Senior's sort of like layouts and everything like that. And, and Junior was coming in and kind of like polishing it. I do think like this was, this was John Junior's book. Like he was doing like the pencils and everything, setting this up. It was his style. And then maybe, and, and you're right, like this was early on in his career. So maybe he hadn't really found his style yet. Maybe he was just kind of like playing it a little bit safer and, and he was still kind of finding his, Voice, but the the artistic mm-hmm. sort of yeah. <laughs> equivalent right. of that, um, and his dad was just. But yeah, it's it is kind of funny because I, I feel a lot of like the models and the the figure work feel more senior ish to me, but the energy and the flow of the story does seem not so much his work. So more of the more of the son, but right. All in all, yeah, it, really, really good. So. Oh, absolutely. I was going to – one other little thing that I find in here is that in the fight right after Monica gets her costume and she kicks the bad guy, Picaro, who he's such a loser. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she decks him like three times and I love it each time. Oh, my gosh. I cannot stand this guy. And that's another thing. If, if this had been an ongoing series, maybe he would have returned. And maybe we would have revisited this South American dictator that was funding the energy experiment. But as far as I know, we've heard nothing about them since then. So there you go. But when Monica decks him the second time, you know, she does this karate kick into his ribs. um, And she's in this kind of cat scratch pose with both arms kind of up and fingers what is going on there i i'm yeah that doesn't really look very <laughs> judo to me uh I, maybe she's supposed to be doing crane pose from karate kid you know <laughs> when done correctly there is no defense i don't i don't know but it's it's a it's just a peculiar fighting pose to me but what are you gonna do that's comics that's what that is right there I would say her body is part energy, so it doesn't look quite right. That would be my no prize. (laughs) I will accept that. I will accept that no prize. (laughs) I I love the little detail when Picaro, when he's on the ground, when he tries to shoot Leclerc one last time, and just her her energy form in the shape of a hand just kind of reaches out and stops the bullet. And that's really, really cool. Just a little detail. Oh, oh yes. Yes, that's beautiful stuff right there. Okay, so we're both agreed this is a great story. Monica is a great hero, a great version of Captain Marvel. Um, but I kind of wanted to get... Uh, we, we've talked a little bit about some of the others. Mm-hmm. Obviously, one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast now is because the Captain Marvel movie just came out. Um, as we are recording this, we are one week away from the wide release of Shazam, featuring another <laughs> Captain Marvel. How crazy is the world we live in? That we actually have is- both Captain Marvels in in the same year, mm-hmm. they'll be in the theater in the same at the same time. 
yeah, that's just the marvelous thing to me. It's like, oh my goodness. So yes, I love it. I'm sorry. I just had to, I just had to say, you know, you know, I'm, I'm old. I grew up watching 70s live action Spider-Man TV show, wondering to myself, this is never going to look good until we can merge live action and animation seamlessly. And I was actually thinking this back at the time. Now, of course, I don't have any proof. So like, and it's not like I can, I'm not going to get any compensation for such a thing nowadays because it's like, I didn't do it. But now what do we see now? That's what we see in all our movies is this, (laughs) that they, and that works because if they do it right, they really make it work. But those were the movies, that was what I had back then. Oh, and now, now the the 10 years of Marvel movies. Oh my gosh. It's just been remarkable. Well, since you since you got us there, let's talk about it. you've seen the movie Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. What were your big impressions of the movie? Um, well, the simple thing is that was it the best Marvel Studios movie for me? Probably not, but boy, did I have fun! I just was enjoying it from the opening, just getting through all of the mystery of who is Carol, how did she get here, what is her past, and just giving us a powerful female character as the protagonist and star of this movie just was a a joy to see and it was a joy to bring my daughters to see so i'll say it right now you know i'm a dad i'm a dad of two of twin teenage girls and they were excited to see a movie starring a woman and i was more than happy to take them there to see that and they gave us one who delivered on you know being a, a, a positive role model and getting the job done and being darn heroic along the way. So yeah, I just loved it. What did you think of it? I liked it. I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it. Um, again, I, I still think after 21 movies, Marvel Studios has not made a bad one. Mm-hmm. Certainly not a commercial flop, but I don't think they've made a bad movie or an unwatchable movie. I think this movie had a lot of good to it. But there were things that bothered me about it. Um, I, I, yeah, there there were things. Some of them kind of nitpicky, but some of them sort of like I, I felt like totally. I, I have like a lot of kind of like little nitpicky points. I'm not going to go through all of them, but they kind of boil down to, I think maybe script issues. But I also think these directors. I don't think they've done a whole lot, and I don't think what they've done is like a note. Like, I, I felt like maybe they just didn't have the right handle on on the storytelling for a story that wasn't completely linear that had a lot of like things I felt like they were just pacing structures mm-hmm. but I also had I had a, a a concern about Brie Larson's performance and I'm I'm reluctant to criticize it because again I feel like there might be nuances of her performance and her portrayal that a woman would recognize and empathize with that me as a guy does not but I felt like there were times in the story that logically would demand a, a character in her situation to have more of an emotional reaction. But she felt just very restrained and very kind of held together. And I was like, mm. it, it feels like she's, she actually has a comment at one point, like in the movie when she says, I feel like I'm fighting with one hand tied behind my back. I kind of felt like she was acting with one hand tied behind her back. But I wondered if, is that the director saying don't put a lot of emotion in the scene because we don't want you to seem emotional. Like they were, they were too aware that, you know, it'd be, it'd be, but again, I'm thinking, I was like, okay, is this just me thinking she should act emotional in this scene? Because that's the way I've always seen women or even men in the given situation act emotional in that scene. Mm -hmm. But is that really the way a woman of her position and her background would act? Like, I just, I don't know. I have, I have concerns because, they're obviously they made decisions about her performance based on the fact that she is a woman. Mm-hmm. She is going to be the premier female superhero of this franchise, and they are appealing. They are making this movie appeal to women, and we're living in a new sort of Me Too movement generation. Everything there's like this whole new landscape in in our culture, and I was like, do I have the wrong read on this situation, or was this in fact? kind of a, a stilted performance based on directors that that weren't great. Right. I just, I don't know. I, I just have questions about Sure, that. and it's kind of tough with us being both guys and yeah. talking about this, or, you know, for us, you know, here we are, you know, the outsiders trying to address that kind of thought on the performance. So I understand completely where you're coming from. And I also feel, I feel the same concerns for myself, which is where I also go, 
I have seen, I've, I've heard plenty from my own daughters and from other kids their age and even from other other women's reaction to this performance and that they, they really have enjoyed it a lot more than, than I had, even though I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I do have some, the thinking I have behind it is also where you're talking about the emotional reaction of things. Um, I think there's just, there's a situation where it's also more of, if you think of Carol as a woman who's gone through trauma, that's definitely, and her military training as well, those two things kind of play together to say, stay in control, take charge of the situation, don't let them see you sweat. And I kind of wonder if that's what I see. I also have seen this even within my own family. I'll say my wife and my sister-in-law, there'll be times when one of them is getting emotional, so the other is supportive by not being emotional and by being the logical supportive one, and then they'll flip-flop where the other one gets emotional. And so that, so they switch those roles fairly seamlessly as a very natural thing to deal with what's happening around them. And Carol, you could almost argue, has been someone who hasn't had that support structure. So she's just going to stay. That's one of the things that, you know, it could be part of the performance. I could see how that would be a little troubling. But it also might, if it was deliberate, I think that would be what I would be seeing them going for, is she has to stay strong in spite of everything else. And she can't allow herself to be emotional in these situations. And I can but see that's, that. you know, what do I, I don't know. No, I, I, I see that. I, I, think know. That, I think that might be the most logical explanation for it. Maybe I just wish the movie was a little bit more clear, a little bit more open-handed in how, how it conveyed that, that thing. Oh, sure. Um, but, I, but I also find, I think it's the emotional reaction, like when, when Carol finds out that the last six years of her life, her, well, her entire life, really, has been a lie as far as she knew it, and that she's been manipulated for, for years. I think the character who had the reaction that I wanted to see from Carol was her friend Maria Rambeau. Mm-hmm. Just kind of tying it back to like this issue, we do meet Monica Rambeau as an 11-year-old in this movie, um, and we do get references to hey, maybe she'll grow up to when this when the timeline catches up. Maybe like when we mm-hmm. meet her, if, she, if she's 35 or 40 years old or something like that, she will have powers. Um, but I, Monica, her her mother Maria Rambeau was my favorite character in this movie because she was the one reacting the way I kind of wanted Carol to. I also, there, there, I've seen like on on some of like the social media, there was a lot of sort of like fallout, like backlash. It was like, well, why wasn't there a love story in this movie? Why wasn't there a romantic subplot to this superhero movie? Like, uh, first of all, not every superhero movie needs room. And then I've also seen some people like, um, there was a romantic subplot. Clearly, the romance was between Carol and Maria Rambeau. Like they had their, their family unit. It was the two of them together with their sur- with Carol's surrogate daughter Maria. And I kind of like that. And then it played out into this other thing. Now I guess on Twitter there are people shipping to use that term Captain Marvel and Valkyrie, uh, Tessa Thompson's character from Thor Ragnarok. They want those two characters to hook up. And Tessa Thompson, the actress, is bisexual or she's LGBT. Uh. So like they they kind of like see these two <laughs> characters together. And I was like, you know what? If we can get Captain Marvel and Valkyrie as, you know, one of the first homosexual couples in the Marvel Universe, I would totally be down for that. I think those two characters would be great. Oh, that is that is pretty wild. I had not seen that. I, I'm not against it. But again, I also go back to the, the, the comment you had before. is like, yeah, we don't really have to have a romantic love story in this movie. It, it was not necessary. But yeah, no, that, that uh, is intriguing. <laughs> the, that might be a, a whole new Defenders team having Captain Marvel <laughs> and Valkyrie on, <laughs> together. That could be a, def- a new a – diff- That would be awesome. Yeah, that would be, that'd be almost classic Defenders uh, movie action as opposed to the TV – Netflix TV Defenders. <laughs> Uh, yes, I like that. But all, all, and all the scenes with Maria and Monica, I enjoyed very much because, yeah, that was, as you called it, I would call that a family scene. That's what that really felt like to me is that that was her coming home and her family being worried about her and being so glad to see her again. Oh, and but yeah, I, I don't necessarily know if I how I feel about the idea of grown of what might happen with grown up Monica. But I was very intrigued by them having a way them going to the effort to plant the seeds for it. Even though there was no connection between Monica and and Carol in the comics or anything like that, that's fine. 
we have to have compress the storytelling a little bit for these movies. They can't quite make them as broad as we have in the comic book history. So I'm fine with that. It was so much fun. And the care and the actress who played Monica was so charming and so, so endearing and such a, and had a sweet role. Um, I, I just, she was a joy. She was just a joy. Yeah. She was very, very cool. Um, one last sort of a lightning round thing. Some of the other people who, the, the other captains, Marvel, lightning round. Um, I just did there. Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. Um, quick thoughts. Like, what do you think about the, the Shazam character? What do you think about him? Oh, I've, I followed him from the TV show, the Saturday morning TV show. Um, that's probably where I saw him the most as a kid. Um, it was always great fun back then. I'm very I haven't read a whole ton of Shazam in the comics myself. A little bit here and there. And, of course, his appearances in Justice League before Justice League International, uh, of course, because it's me. Um, but I, I've enjoyed the character. Um, I've never really found that hook that made me really love the character. I've just He's been fun to have. I enjoy seeing him pop up here and there. But I've never found that really that extended story or anything that got me in there to – just love the character end to end. But boy, what I've seen for all the trailers we've seen for the Shazam movie, that's love right there. I'm I'm hooked. This whole you know angle on basically being big with superpowers, it just works so well for the concept of Shazam that I'm I'm all in for this movie. I'm looking forward to seeing how it how it plays out. What are your thoughts on that one? Uh, I'm I am curious. I I think it's an it's an interesting take. Um, I am reluctant to see them have dumbed down the character or or giving him the superhero with the personality of like a twelve year old or something like that. I mm-hmm. I don't know how much I'm gonna like that, but it is an interesting. It is a unique interpretation, and when we're getting seven superhero movies a year now, which is mm-hmm. preposterous. Like, <laughs> that's kind of the, the case now. Like, I, I do think they need to find a way of distinguishing themselves and setting themselves apart, and that is, that's an interesting take, and I, I hope they are successful with that. I, this, that's interesting, because I had a conversation with um, one of my co-workers this last week about the movie as well, um, with him talking about the very same thing you're talking about, that, especially when you go to the concept of the powers behind him that's the s in shazam stands for the wisdom of solomon and the fact that here we have a character who's not necessarily showing a whole ton of wisdom from the snippets that we display there in the but it's it the wisdom doesn't take away from your personality it was obviously one thing also this was a big conversation we had in other channels on the the fire and water message board, uh, comment sections, that wisdom is not a passive ability. You actually do have to like choose to use your wisdom. You can, you can be very wise to the world and if you, but if you don't act on it, you'll pay the price for it. So, you know, it's not the maturity of Solomon. It's the wisdom of Solomon. (laughs) (laughs) So we still have, we still, yeah. So we still have the potential for that being the out of it. Like, yes, he still has the maturity. He still has that immaturity, which I think many of us adults who are like listening to these podcasts and talking about these podcasts can sympathize with a little bit, maybe just a bit. (laughs) What do you think of uh, some of the Kree characters who have had the, the name Captain Marvel, like the original Marvel or Genus Vel or somebody like that? Like some of those characters, right? Marvel? Um, and I read very little of Marvel back when he was in being actively published. Um, I did only just a just a ten years ago. Maybe I got the trade paperback, The Life and Death of Captain Marvel, which printed like his the first major Thanos saga with him and finishing with the death of Captain Marvel cop, uh, graphic novel. And that was just spectacular. Um, but I, you know, I was never really that into the character. I'll freely admit I wasn't that into him. He was pretty dry. Yes. He could be, a, he could be a hothead, <laughs> but he was a pretty dry character overall. I don't think that's too controversial. Um, uh, but you know, with being a full once, you know, with my, when my comic book collecting was in full gear, you know, all that time, you know, by the time Avengers Forever came out and we were introduced to the to Genesvel become really becoming Captain Marvel, I'd seen his previous appearances, but, but when he really became Captain Marvel in that series and then his 
ongoing series started right after that, I had to pick up that series because I loved Avengers Forever. I also enjoy uh, Peter David's writing a lot. So with him being the writer, that was a, that was a no-brainer. Um, so that story is really interesting um, and took to went to some interesting places. Uh, really appreciated what they, they tried to do with that character, kind of make him even still seem like an outsider within the Marvel Universe. Um, so that was, that was great. That was kind of fun there. I don't necessarily like how things ended with Thunderbolts with his appearances there. I really wish they had given him more of a, a heroic sort of ending, but that's not the way – that's not Thunderbolts' mission statement. That was not <laughs> yeah. how they end things there. So <laughs> there you go. But yeah, that's kind of so that's how I felt. That's how I felt with with those with the two vels. Um, how about what are your exposures to them? With Genesis, I, I honestly I haven't read a whole. I basically I've read Avengers Forever, um, and I've got his his own solo story like on Marvel Unlimited, on, like queued up. Like I'm gonna get to this eventually, um, but I I just I do know very little of that character other than once he got the new costume update that sort of has, like, the Starscape background for his body with, like, the old Kree warrior helmet and everything. That's just a very cool, very cool design. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the no- oh, the only thing I know about the character is he looks badass. Mm-hmm. Um, with Marvel, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Like, I I love Gene Colan, and he was one of the, he was the original artist on that, but, yeah, those those original Marvel stories, like when they first introduced the character, it, it really feels like neither Stan Lee nor Roy Thomas really had much interest in this character. It was just that the publisher told them, Hey, make a captain Marvel so we can copyright the name. Uh. That's it does kind of feel like that because there's not a lot of blood right. going into those stories. Um, but I, I do like Gene Colan's art and I, I kind of like, I, I love the very silver aginess of that original green and white Cree uniform. I, I like that look. Um, the character, the character definitely got more interesting once once they redesigned the costume to give him like the superhero look, and once Jim Starlin took over. And the death of Captain Marvel is an amazing story. I, I yeah, I don't I don't have a whole lot of love for Marvel other than I love the way he died and I love his original Cree costume. But you can put that Cree costume on any Cree soldier, and I, I get the same love for it. <laughs> Um, yeah, the last thing is, I like that they finally gave Carol the name of Captain Marvel, and this will be sort of yes. the, the controversial hot take at the end of this episode, is Monica Rambeau is my favorite character to have borne the name Captain Marvel. However, I, I do think once Marvel died, if somebody else was going to inherit that title, it should have been Carol. Carol was there. Carol was a spinoff of Marvel. She had that personal connection to him. I think that she she earns it. She deserves it. I so I wish, you know, if they had given her that title like a long ago, and if if Monica Rambeau had been created as something else, Captain Photon, Captain Spectrum, something else, something else. Um, and I wish like she had had a name that had stuck with her because I do think the way she was very very unceremoniously you know, taken out of the Avengers at like once mm-hmm. uh, the story, as I have heard it, at least as I've heard it kind of like passed down. And, and you may have some other knowledge about this was that, you know, Mark Grunewald, once he took over the editing, he really wanted Captain America to take over the leadership of the Avengers. And he really was pushing for that because, Hey, he was writing Captain America too. And maybe he had a stake in that character. And as I have heard it, he was really pressuring Roger Stern to make Monica basically fail and make her look incompetent so that Captain America would take over as the leader of the Avengers. And Roger Stern was like, well, that could, like having the strong black woman leader replaced by another white man, he's like, that could appear racist or sexist or both. And Grunewald did not like that accusation Mm. and basically fired Roger Stern off of the Avengers and from what it sounds like, held a grudge and kept Stern off of Marvel mm. for a while. And I don't think Monica has recovered since then. Uh, I have not heard that story. That, that was the that was the story I've heard of how Roger Stern just abruptly left the book and and yeah, like the end of like the way Doctor Druid was manipulating her and everything, like just the end of that run was kinda of painful. Mm-hmm. And I think it was it had a lot to do with the behind-the-scenes mm, shenanigans. Yep, so it was. And yeah, I, I don't think the way she was depowered, I don't think she's really recovered since then, even though she had a few one-shots in the 90s. But 
I think if she had been allowed to, to still be a heavy hitter, if she had had a name that stuck and was was kind of like permanent, mm-hmm. um, otherwise, you know, going between Photon and then Spectrum or just Monica, like when she was in Next Wave or something like that, you get the right. the Hank Pym identity disorder kind of problem. Is is he Yellow Jacket? Is he Giant Man? Is he Goliath? It's like that that really it's hard to build a fan base when nobody knows what to call you. So right, absolutely. My own thoughts on that is I um like I had not really heard the story about her why she was pushed out of Avengers. One of the things from reading the stories at the time was that I, it's, I'm sorry to hear editorial mandates come down that way, especially from someone I respect like Mark Ruinwald, because I love this Captain America run, but I'm not happy to hear that sort of thing there. Um, but it also is one of those situations where Monica's story within Stern's Avengers was also her personal arc in there, and also she, she was kind of then Stern's character all the way. And you know, lots of Avengers writers do that. They'll have a character they introduce to the book who are their character. But when that writer goes, other writers don't really know what to do with them, and they'll usually write them out in place of the character they want to have in the book. So it was. it really felt, unfortunately, like that was what really happened to Monica's character as well. Is that nobody else could make her stick? But I think it might have been it just might have looked bad for what happened with uh, with how they pushed her out for some other some other writer to bring her back in. Now some other writers have done good with her. And I think some of them have tried to do really good things with her, but they just haven't. It just hasn't worked out. And then they have another character come along when they introduced Janice Vell and eventually made him take on the name and Captain Marvel is like, oh, well, that's the end of that. We're not going to really see her get used well again as Captain Marvel, which I was very disappointed by, really. Although I personally, in spite of her other superhero names, none of which I really personally – I don't really like them. I affectionately call her Captain Monica instead because at least <laughs> that makes her initials still CM, and that was her nickname all the time was CM. So I, I can't – I don't shake that, and I, it may not sound as respectful – but really, that's – I do it out of love, as I call her Captain Monica. Um, but yeah, I mean they did get – and Al Ewing, who did his run on Mighty Avengers and also has been reading a, a run of The Ultimates, um, he did some interesting things with her. I think he really liked her character. I think he really wanted to do things with her. Um, Kurt Busiek also used her pretty well when he was writing Avengers, um, but he just didn't bring her into the fold full full force right. uh, like I would have wanted to see. Um, but I haven't read any of the any of the Ultimates by Ewing, um, so I don't really know firsthand if those were done pretty well. I don't know if you've if you've seen those. I've only read the first issue. Um, it didn't grab me, but I'm currently in lo- having a love affair with Al Ewing's Immortal Hulk run right now. So just based on how ah, much I love that, I want ah. to give the Ultimates another shot. Um, I want to dive into that and just see if it mm-hmm. was just maybe the first issue didn't grab me because I, I know that she is in that and I, I want to read that for the strength of Ewing's writing and for Monica to see if he does more mm-hmm. of her. But yeah, I, I certainly, I would like, based on, you know, the name recognition, you know, coming out of the Captain Marvel movie, I would hope that she gets a bigger push. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, like, I mean, she's gone through a few costume redesigns, but I think you're right. She needs a new costume and she needs the bucket boots back because it's just not her without it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth right there. Also, I didn't want to gloss over your other statement about Carol taking over the Captain Marvel name. I couldn't agree more. I really felt that that was a great change for her as a character. Anybody should wear the mantle within the Marvel Universe by this point. I was really happy to see them. them. It should not have felt like a bold choice. It really shouldn't have felt like it, but it still did. We got hints of it with Brian Michael Bendis's uh, Avengers run. He gave little hints of it when he brought her back and had her start calling herself Ms. Marvel. And in fact, I guess I started this back when the movie got announced a year or so ago. I was binging through Marvel Unlimited. I, I binge on. I, I'm so hooked on Marvel Unlimited. It's like crack, isn't it? Like crack. You just you just can't keep. You just go back to for more. I was on a big binge for all of Carol's series that she was the 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 star of. So her Ms. Marvel series, any issues they had, I read all of them, and I read all of her Captain Marvels series as well. And I was just floored by the 
but the stories that Kelly Sue DeConnick did. They really took, took her up a notch and made her have some real agency and, and really felt like some real joy in having the character become the hero that she's been hinted at being all this time. Instead of being the female character of someone else, no, she is Captain Marvel now. So I was those were those were great fun to read through. Yeah, I really liked the the, the first run of that the Deconic run of Captain Marvel. I thought she did a great job, totally just showing us this aspect of the character, giving her the costume reboot that was like the colors reversed or kind of like flipped mm-hmm. of of Marvel's costume and everything like that. It's it's striking. It's heroic. It looks good. Mm-hmm. She's comfortable. She's confident. She's worthy of a name. And I I will admit I do have a soft spot for the the cheesecake costume that she had with the, <laughs> the Ms. Marvel run and everything with the the black leather and the red sash. I I always love that costume, but it's mm-hmm. it's not the most progressive costume for your well. show, but it's um. It's no, I, it, it did not. I, it does like not. It did not stay with the times. It did not stay with the times. But at the time it was out, it's a cheesecake costume. I like a degree of cheesecake, but it's not. It's not what the character I, needed. I, I completely um, so, understand. So yeah, I like what they've done with the character, and I think it's great. But um, yeah, overall, I mean, there are tons of, as I said, Captain's Marvel across the various public publishing spectrum, and they're really good. But Monica is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just. She's she's come a long way since the other black girl. That's not Storm, uh, <laughs> what I knew her as. Uh, that now, for me, she's a top five woman of Marvel comics, like of the of the female Marvel superheroes. Monica is in my top five. I, I dig the characters. And see, that's really great to hear, considering that you know you didn't. I mean, I I was introduced to her back when she first started, so you know I could see her progression. I could see what they were doing with her back then, and it shows how well they wrote her and established her as a character that she can still talk to a modern audience. And they just got they just got to they just got to find the right way to get her back out there again. So that's fantastic. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, Tim, I want to thank you for being my guest. This was a ton of fun. Where else can people find you online? Oh, people can't find me online. I don't go online. Uh, <laughs> the best place to find me is on Twitter at TimPrice17, um, where I'm constantly retweeting uh, podcast announcements. Um, I, I don't have anything else coming up soon. You might be able to find me on my uh, semi-OCD appearances on DC OCD cast um, and all the other th- wonderful things that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, which was far too kind of you. And I think I'm scheduled in not the immediate future, but sometime soon for something called Cheers cast. I don't really know what it's about, but it sounds fun. So I'm looking forward to that. And that's coming up in the uh, sometime soon. Have you heard of Cheers Cast, Ryan? Uh, I've heard that the host of that show is a dick, but that's all I know. <laughs> oh, well, can't win them all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for being on the show. And people, thank you, as always, for tuning in. You know you can support the show on Facebook and Twitter. Please leave a comment on the website post, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. And until next time, go find your joy. Turn up the lights and young baby Extra bright, I want y'all to see